0: Welcome to another edition of EDSA Union Now. This time we'll hear from Sarah Jayerman, a labor advocate who's been organizing restaurant workers and other tipped employees in the Bay Area for years. And she's currently the president of One Fair Wage. As our series being church in the time of COVID-19 continues, be sure to check out the variety of both live and evergreen archive content on our Facebook page. Good afternoon, and welcome to another in our series of conversations on being church in the time of COVID 19. It is an honor to have joining me today, Saru Jayarman, award winning attorney, author, activist, co founder, and president of the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United. This nonprofit was founded after September 11th. 2011, as a nonprofit fighting to improve wages and working conditions for restaurant workers. Saru, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Reverend. And I um, just wanted to share that um, actually, we have uh, created a campaign called One Fair Wage that you have been a part of. Thank you for speaking to it in the past. And we actually uh, grew One Fair Wage into a broader coalition. So I am now actually my title right now is President of One Fair Wage, founded the Restaurant Opportunity Center, and now I lead this broader effort called One Fair Wage, just to update
0: no, thank you. Thank bit. you so much for uh, bringing that uh, up to date for me. And we're going to talk about One Fair Wage uh, a later in this conversation. So much to cover <laughs> and uh, such little time. So let's get started. This COVID-19 pandemic crisis has, of course, very rawly exposed the many fissures of injustice and inequalities in our society that have at best been ignored and at worst accepted as commonplace. And so it is that for many of our fellow human beings, this crisis has only exacerbated what has already been for them difficult, if not untenable realities of living. In this regard, the restaurant industry has been greatly impacted by this pandemic, but there have been no workers in that industry who reflect the fissures of injustice and equality more than tipped workers. And so before we get into some of the particular hardships that they're now facing and talk more about even one fair wage, Saru, I venture to guess that many folks who are listening don't know the history of tipping in this country. You have indeed called tipping unconscionable and literally a slave wage. In fact, to know this history is to understand more about the stubborn nature of injustice that these restaurant workers face. So can you explain and tell us more about yeah. tipping?
1: Yeah, you know, it isn't tipping itself that is, the, that is, the, uh, that is the, the, the really kind of evil here. It's the fact that because of slavery in the United States, tipping became a replacement for a wage rather than what it was intended to be originally, which is an extra or a bonus on top of a wage. So tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats or nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. It was what they called noblesse oblige, (laughs) you know, a a superior giving uh, something to an inferior, but always on top of their salary. Um, When the idea came to the States, it was in the late 1850s, When uh, Americans, rich Americans, started traveling to Europe and coming back and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe and trying to tip. And at first, there was massive populist rejection of the notion of tipping. Americans resoundingly rejected it. They said, We're a democracy, that we're not a feudal society. Um, You know, you should get good service regardless of how much you can afford to tip. And by the way, we think employers should pay their workers, not customers. And so, six states in the United States actually passed complete prohibitions on tipping at the end of the the 19th century. Uh, But really uh, it was slavery that changed everything because that that populist movement, by the way, which was so successful and, and banned tipping in many states, it spread to Europe. The labor movement picked it up in Europe and got rid of tipping in a lot of Europe with the rallying cry, we are professionals. We don't live on your crumbs anymore. This is not feudal Europe anymore. In the States, we went in the exact opposite direction because of slavery. So at emancipation, there were two industries that demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything at all. One was the Pullman train company. And many of your listeners will know the history of the Pullman car porters who formed the first black union in the United States, all men, um, and actually won the right to an actual wage rather than being paid. Uh, in tips. And and people who don't know, these were luxury trains. This is how white people would get across the country, East Coast, West Coast. Um, And the the porters were Black men. They all called them George. There's actually a really fabulous movie, 10,000 Black men named George. Um, And they were paid nothing and expected to live on the tips of these rich passengers uh, until A. Philip Randolph organized the first Black Union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and won the right to an actual wage rather than living on tips. But there was a second industry that demanded this. It was the restaurant industry. And in that case, they were mostly black women being hired. And in that case, they said, you should, you should not have, we should not have to pay you, you should work for tips. After all, black people had not been paid for centuries. So why pay them now? And that $0 wage for restaurant workers at emancipation became law in 1938 as part of the new deal when everybody got the right to a minimum wage for the first time, except for groups of black workers, domestic workers, farm workers, and tipped workers who were told you get a $0 wage as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. And we went from zero in 1938 during the new deal to $2.13 an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in these United States of America. And today, 43 states, including New York state, continue with this legacy of slavery with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. It's higher in New York, thanks to our advocacy, it's closer to $10. But 40 out of 43 states have wages of less than $5 an hour. 40 states out of 50 have wages of less than $5 an hour. And by the way, th- today, this is not a sliver of the economy that gets paid 2 3 or $4. This is the nation's largest and fastest growing workforce. Almost 14 million workers before the pandemic hit, 14 million workers, almost one in 10 Americans works in restaurants and is allowed to be paid less than $5 by their employers legally because of a trade lobby that's been around since emancipation because of a legacy of slavery.
0: Thank you for that very rich history that really helps us to understand in even a more profound way, the impact of the legacy of slavery, but the deep fissure within our own democracy, if you will, that suggests that as long as these kind of inequities and injustices exist, we will never be ready for a pandemic of this nature. And so I wanna talk a little bit about how this pandemic has compounded the uh, inequity and the uh, crises for tipped workers and restaurant workers. First, let me ask you this. We know that in this country that tipping began as a way not to pay black workers. What's the current demographic uh, of tipped workers today? And then we'll I'm go I'm so glad there. you
1: asked that because um, I was just about to say It's important to note who we're talking about when we say they're really struggling, because today, uh, 14 million restaurant workers, six or seven million of them are tipped. 70 percent of tipped workers in America are women. They are largely women working in IHOPs and Denny's and dive bars. You know, I think people who live in New York City or Washington, D.C., they think, oh, everybody makes a lot of money in tips. Even in New York City and Washington, D.C., there are thousands of small restaurants and dive bars and hole in the wall joints and mom and pop diners where women are struggling to make ends meet on a sub minimum wage and tips and not making the kind of tips you might make in fine dining. Fine dining is a tiny sliver of the whole industry. So the majority of these folks are women. Forty percent of them are single moms. They are disproportionately women of color. And especially the women of color are the ones working in the more casual restaurants where they make far less in tips and often make cash tips, which are you know, very difficult to record. And that has become a huge problem now in trying to get unemployment insurance. So they are mostly women and they are disproportionately women of color.
0: Well, and now let's talk about uh, that reality. Uh, in terms of now we move from one fair wage, which they already don't have, to the issue of here we are in COVID. And prior to COVID, the COVID crisis, there was already a concern and an issue of paid sick leave. You have a woman, uh, like a Portia Green, who was interviewed by the New York Times some time ago, who is one of these restaurant workers. And she said that if she takes off work, she loses $100 a day. And if she misses work for several days, she'll lose her job. We also know that at least in some of the most recent statistics, one in six restaurant workers, as you've just stated, live below the poverty line. So now here we are in the COVID crisis.
1: Yeah.
0: When people are being asked not to work. Explain the predicament and what's going on here when we are talking about these tip and service workers. Yeah. Disproportionately people of color and women of color.
1: Disproportionately people of color and women, you know, just before the shelter in place order went into effect, we were starting to convince state legislatures that they needed to move away from this system. So, um, Reverend Douglas, you were part of a really great event uh, last year where we celebrated the fact that the U S house of representatives passed one fair wage in July of last year. That's right. Um, and it was the first time since emancipation that either House of Congress moved to eliminate the sub minimum wage. But it was just the House. And Senator Mitch McConnell was not going to move any anything in terms of minimum wage. So it was to, it was left to the states. And Governor Cuomo was moving towards us. And, you know, Massachusetts was moving a bill. Illinois, many states were moving. When coronavirus hit, 10 million, 10 million restaurant workers lost their jobs. Um, at least 10 million. And our estimate based on workers who've been you know, writing to us, and we've had 166,000, 166,000 workers apply for relief to our fund, right. relief fund. We've been looking at the data from this 166,000 workers, 60 to 65% of them are saying that they are ineligible or believe they're ineligible for unemployment insurance. Now there is definitely a percentage of those that can't get unemployment insurance because of their immigration status. Some of them are undocumented, but even among the documented, many are saying, I can't apply for this because the Trump administration will then view me as a public charge if I apply for unemployment offense. So immigrants are generally not applying. That's clear. But there's actually a much larger percentage of women, again, disproportionately women of color, who are getting denied unemployment insurance because the states are telling them your wages plus your tips are too low to meet the minimum threshold <laughs> right. to get unemployment insurance. Unbelievable. In words, after decades of working, they're being, told, be, being penalized for what they were paid by their employers. <laughs> and even in New York State, for example, which you think people make more, you think it's not so bad as a Michigan or a Pennsylvania or a Mississippi, but we've heard from countless workers in New York who are saying, Um, My boss actually never paid me a wage. I just had to live off. We heard from a worker in Brooklyn, a bar in Brooklyn, where all of last year, employer never paid the workers, (laughs) just let them live on tips. And so when he applies for unemployment insurance, the unemployment insurance says, well, it looks like you didn't work, you know, or for any of the women who work in more casual restaurants and it's cash tips, they'll say, looks like all you got was this sub minimum wage and it's not enough to actually meet the minimum threshold, or even if they do meet the minimum threshold, they're getting a small percentage. I heard from a woman who said, I worked two restaurant jobs, one was under the table, one was uh, on the books, but because I was working two jobs to try to make ends meet, they said the most I could get was $171 a week in unemployment insurance. And Another woman said, you know, tips started to go down before coronavirus right. because people start, stop eating out. And so when they look back at how much I earned, they see the tips are, are like nothing. And that's what they're awarding me the unemployment insurance on. So it's a, it's a terrible situation that is pointing out why it was never tenable to force people to live on the whims and mercies of customers. It was never tenable to have employers not pay their workers a stable wage, like every other worker in every other industry.
0: not simply untenable, unconscionable and immoral. And so what we are seeing is a crisis compounded. And so, which is why the fight for one fair wage was was and is such an important fight, it's a catch 22. You're caught in an unjust system and that unjust system continues to penalize you for that which it did to you in the first place. That's right. (laughs) Which leads to another aspect of, of this and that is healthcare. So we hear now, of course, again, how the uh, governmental, political, and medical infrastructure was not ready for this crisis. Well, our social infrastructure is not ready for this crisis because in as much as any population of people is deprived of access to health care, then all of our health is, as a nation, is at risk. What we know, again, is that these people, these tipped workers, uh, again, I like to emphasize mostly people of color, women of color working in this restaurant history, industry have been deprived of healthcare. And here we are in the COVID-19 crisis. Speak to that.
1: I mean, (laughs) 90% of restaurant workers nationwide never had healthcare, access to healthcare. Unfortunately, even with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, a lot of these workers were being cut out. The re- I, I want people to understand who's responsible. Yes. The National Restaurant Association is a powerful trade lobby. We call it the other NRA. Mm-hmm. It represents the major chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Garden's. The four leaders of the NRA are McDonald's, Yum Brands, which is KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, Darden, which is Olive Garden. Uh, and Disney, these four companies have led the NRA, the NRA includes all the chains, and uh, they have been around in various forms since emancipation, demanding the right to pay people nothing, and now $2 an hour. They, by the way, are also the ones that fought tooth and nail against Obama, against healthcare reform, and when it passed, they formed something called the 29ers Club, saying we will all, commit to giving our workers less than just under 30 30 hours 29 hours so that they won't be eligible for the exchanges this is how evil this <laughs> is right. how uh intentional i should say this is how intentional the greed is intentional in keeping workers at $2 in um keeping them from getting health care so 90% of these workers didn't have health care and if the pandemic has proven nothing it's that When you allow one-tenth of the American workforce to go without a means to take care of themselves, that doesn't just impact them, it impacts all of us. And so it is time to call out these corporations that have infected the country, frankly, infected the country. They are, they've got blood on their hands. They are responsible for the fact that most of us don't have a way to take care of ourselves and therefore are going to endanger other people as well. And they, not only are they responsible, they are, instead of being held accountable, they are getting tens of millions of dollars from PPP right now. So here are these workers that are paid $2 because of their lobbying, not getting a dollar, a dime from the government in unemployment insurance. And meanwhile, Roots Chris Steakhouse, and Applebee's and IHOP and Olive Garden are getting 20, $30 million a piece from a program that was supposed to benefit small businesses.
0: That's right, that's right.
1: And, and, and we, what we need right now is to say enough is enough.
0: So, this, enough leads enough. Me, I'm so what, this leads me to, you talk about who's responsible, but let's talk about who's accountable. And this has happened On the watch of, let's say, those of us in the faith community. This is a justice issue, which means it's a moral issue, which means it is evil, which means because injustice is evil, and it is a sin. And it has happened on our watch. These inequities and inequalities, this evil has occurred and continues to occur on our watch. You have been involved for a long time in in the, of course, one fair wage, but in trying to get the faith community to step up to the plate and to get more involved in this fight, in this struggle, because, as you have just pointed out, it impacts us all. And if we want to be self-interested, well, when one Community goes without health care. Look what has happened to us. We are all sick, and we are all impacted. So I want to ask you now, as our time we could go on forever as our time is drawing nigh. What is your particular call and challenge to the faith community? How not can we get involved? How must we be involved? Not only now, because you have many uh, advocacy programs going on right now, petitions, et cetera, uh, that need to be addressed during this COVID crisis. So not only now, but also beyond. What do you hope to see from the faith community? Because my estimation, this is our responsibility.
1: Oh, thank you so much for asking and for believing that (laughs) because we need your partnership so deeply right now. So I would say two main things I really would love to partner with the faith community on. First, I wanna say that despite the horrors we've just talked about, there is actually tremendous hope, possibility, opportunity in the moment for change because everything that I've described has not gone unnoticed, not only by the elected officials, but by employers, by restaurant owners. And you wouldn't believe the number of restaurant owners that have fought us in the past that are now coming to us and saying, it's time. It's time for change. Uh, our business model has been blown up anyway. We might as well start afresh and do it right. I've had em- I have employers who were card carrying members of the National Restaurant Association, funded the Restaurant Association's fight against us, now saying we want to work with you. We want to figure out a way to move to one fair wage. And that opening means it's a time to go with the employers and the workers together to Governor Cuomo, to various governors various legislatures and say time is up enough is enough uh we we need change and desperately would love to work with faith leaders to join us in that if if i'm going with restaurant owners to a governor to say we need change i need i need you with us (laughs) i need you to stand with us and so i i you have my contact information i'm happy to share with anybody who's watching i would really love to partner with you to go to Governor Cuomo in New York, who's definitely, I think, uh, potentially moving, but if you have listeners from other states, would love to work with you in other states uh, and say, we we need to do this. It's not just the right thing to do. It's not just that employers are finally willing to do it. it. It is, it is like you said, it is, it is the moral and just and must thing to do the thing we must do. So that's one. I need your partnership going to these elected officials that can be done in a variety of ways. Signing letters, doing events with us. You know, we could do, I don't know if you've been doing digital prayer vigils, but we can do that. Um, Anything would be great. Um, The second piece is that you lead large congregations of people who eat and eat out. And so um, we are, we have a consumer program that we want to work with you on where consumers can support the restaurants that are willing to make change. Uh, and they can encourage the restaurants that have not been willing to make change. We created an app called the ROC National Diners Guide that tells you which restaurants have been doing the right thing so consumers could order from those restaurants that are getting gold and silver stars. But we're also launching a program, we just launched it in California, we're launching it in New York City, Boston and Philadelphia and DC called High Road Kitchens where we are providing cash grants to restaurants that commit to going to one fair wage next year to rehire workers and repurpose themselves as community kitchens feeding thousands of people. And we know, you know, we're gonna to have to expand our feeding programs quite substantially and restaurants have that capacity. What we can do is help them feed people and at the same time get them to commit to change. So there are things that consumers can do supporting those high road kitchens, supporting restaurants that are doing it right. Um, and we'd love to come and either speak to your congregation about how, what can be done and how it can be done or uh, to get your help to speak to your congregation and to share the list of restaurants that people should be supporting right now. So would love to partner with all of you to uplift these issues to legislators uh, through events, through letters, through sign-ons. And then two, would love to work with you to reach your congregations and have consumers, you know, consumers have tremendous power and consumers of conscience have even more power.
0: No, th- thank you, and and that's right. And I like to often say that uh, one of the strongest lobbying groups can be uh, people in the faith community with moral conscience. And this is a matter of justice. This is a moral issue. And so I do invite people to go online uh, to the restaurant uh Opportunity Center uh, and is t- in one fair wage. You have uh, petitions uh, yes. there online that uh, can be signed even during this time. Yes. Uh, and that be- get, is the beginning of the efforts to really address this injustice. And this, I like as you speak of this crisis as provided an opening because crisis does mean an opportunity as well and an opportunity to live into the best of who we can be and to at least correct uh, this major fissure uh, in our democracy. So I thank you thank for you bringing so this to our attention and this challenge. And I ask you if you have one message that you want to leave us with. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, we, uh, we've gotten together with, uh, a large coalition of other social justice organizations and even progressive businesses to put out a frame uh, that we're calling um, Reimagine. So the, the website is there is no going back, there is no going back.org. Um, we say there's no going back. We can only go forward together. If if we've learned nothing, it's our interconnectedness. Um, and that means taking care of each other. And that means reimagining what our world will look like. So. Um, If you can join us, you can go to the website OneFairWage.org, O-N-E FairWage.org. Get everybody to also go to the website There's No Going Back, and let's reimagine a new future um, in which everybody can actually thrive and succeed, not just survive.
0: Wow, that is a perfect way to end. There is no going back. There cannot be any going back to the realities of injustice that have indeed exacerbated the crises in which we find ourselves, and particularly for some of our most vulnerable communities. And let's all together reimagine what a just society would look like.